This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Thank you very much. I've never had such a detailed introduction before, so thank you very much, John, and thank you for having me. I have to say, I'm very envious because where I went to school, as John said, in Ohio, uh, we did not wear bathing suits and tank tops to class. So very envious of that and the fact, obviously, that I wish I was back in college myself. But it, it's been many, many years, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so, but again, thank you very much for having me. So I'm not sure how many of you are aware, but tomorrow is a very, very, very big day. Anybody want to know why? Yes, exactly. So it could be Facebook IPO, could be the largest IPO in history, putting the valuation of the company at $100 billion and Mark Zuckerberg at $24 billion. Sick. Unbelievable. How many of you have seen the movie The, the Social Network? So most everybody. So we, we know the story of Mark Zuckerberg the rise through Harvard, the dorm room, the creation of thefacebook.com. But the story that you may not be as familiar with, actually, is the story of his right-hand woman, Sheryl Sandberg. And Sheryl is his COO. And Sheryl, like Mark, grew up and actually went on to Harvard, which she grew up in Florida, always at the top of her class as a child, went to Harvard both for her undergrad and graduate degree. And while she was at Harvard, she actually had the luck of crossing paths in one of her economics classes with the Larry Summers. Now, some of you may recognize the name Larry Summers from a couple different instances. He was actually at the World Bank. He was actually the Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton. And he was also the president of Harvard, remember this part from the movie, when the Winklevoss twins went and whined about the fact that Mark Zuckerberg had stolen their idea. That was he was the president at that particular time. Well, Cheryl actually went and eventually worked for Larry while he was Treasury Secretary, became his chief of staff. So great opportunity, obviously, great mentor to have in life. And when the Democrats were not reelected in 2001, she used that opportunity to move west. And luck hit her again, and she landed at Google. She was at Google till about 2007, 2008, oversaw AdSense, AdWords, obviously there during the early days, made quite a bit of money herself based on her operations and what she was responsible there. And then luck struck again, and she crossed paths with the one and only Mark Zuckerberg at a party in Silicon Valley that was hosted by Dan Rosenwig. And they began to talk about becoming the COO of Facebook. 
I'm not sure she's going to be worth probably $24 billion on paper after tomorrow, but she'll be probably pretty damn close. So I share this story of Cheryl because it is nothing like my own. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Yes, that's me. Yes, that's my hair. It's amazing that I have any left concerning the amount of chemicals that required. Um, So I actually grew up on the other end of the weather spectrum, Cheryl in Florida, myself actually in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. I can't say I was um, exactly at the top of my class. I like to say that I was in the top half of my class. And while I was in school, and this is where I got an interest in journalism, I had a really great English professor about junior, senior year that definitely encouraged me to pursue that path. And so when I graduated from high school, not a great test taker, admittedly, when it came to SATs and ACTs. And so the best journalism school at the time, and probably still is, is Northwestern. I couldn't get in, nor could I afford it. So I went to the next best thing, which at that point in time was Ohio University. It was about fourth in the country in lovely Athens, Ohio. And Ohio University's greatest claim to fame is that it often gets confused with Ohio State University. So we have about 20,000 students versus 60,000 students. Um, But it was a great time, and I I definitely uh, miss it and wish I was back there sometimes. Graduated in about 1994. And as John can attest, 1994 was not a great year for employment. It was really just before, really, the internet age and the onset. Um, We did not have a lot of employers lining up at campus, recruiting students. And so we were all sending resumes out everywhere and anywhere that we could possibly get a job. I did end up finding something in journalism. And at that time, I was really focused on trying to get something in public relations, sports marketing, and sports, you know, was like entertainment. Everybody wanted to work in sports. They didn't pay anything, but that was really my de- desire and focus at the time. So I ended up getting a job, actually, at the United States Professional Tennis Registry in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, for about six months. Paid a whopping $200 a week. I had to live with about three strangers who were still in college, and so, you know, I can't even tell you how many bodies in the morning I'd have to walk over trying to actually get to my job had to supplement my income in the evenings and and working at some tennis pro shops and some of the other Hilton Head Island plantations. And just like before, I was sending resumes everywhere trying to find a full-time job after my internship. Hawaii, White Plains, New York, that's where the USTA. And again, I thought my passion was sports marketing. That's really what I was fixated on. And I got one response. And that one response was from my best friend in college who had landed a gig in Denver and said, hey, you can sleep on my living room while you look for something. So that's what I did. I'm pleased to say I did bring my own couch. And I moved west to Denver, Colorado, and lived in her living room for a matter of months and tempt trying to find a job. Do people do that anymore, temp jobs? Has anybody ever done temp jobs where you go into these places and it could be a different place every day of the week. You just never know. You work through a temp agency. It has got to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, the loneliest existence on the planet. Because you go into these places and nobody knows how long you're going to be there, who the hell you are, what the heck you're doing. And so nobody really engages with you. But I got so lucky that one of the places that I was temping actually eventually offered me a full-time job. Was it in journalism? No. 
Was it in public relations? No. Was it in sports marketing? No. It was selling commercial printing. So going back to John's comment, great sales experience, really, really challenging. Their definition of lead generation or prospecting was literally opening the phone book and dialing for dollars, which is exactly what I did for the first three to four months. And those signs on office buildings that state, you know, no solicitation, please, I ignored those, would walk in, put my collateral down. But, you know, after four months, even though I was competing against fellows that had been selling commercial printing for quite a few years, I actually rose to the top and actually really liked and learned to love sales. So I did a couple more gigs in Denver and eventually landed up in Boston. To tell that story in terms of how I made that move, I usually need a cocktail in hand. So if you see me up on State Street, I'm I'm happy to share it. But let's just say I ended up in Boston. And that, as John said, is where I eventually ended up at Be Free. I started there in 1999. As John stated, it will actually be 13 years in July. I started there as an advertiser account manager, working with some of their biggest accounts like barnesandnoble.com. And then over the course of time, I landed into a couple of management positions on both the advertiser side and the publisher side. And it was about 2007 that I was appointed president of Commission Junction. So what I would like to do today is to demonstrate to all of you that you don't need to be a member of the educated elite or possess the intellect of a Mark Zuckerberg to be successful. When I look back on my own career and I look back at those around me, and we also hire a lot of entry-level students, and as John said, I actually brought a couple of my colleagues that are doing quite a bit of recruiting right now. We have about 67 open requisitions in Santa Barbara and across the country. But there's two traits that really stand out and that I have learned to live by over the 20 plus years that I've been in business, and that is humility and confidence. And typically those two traits don't sit together. But when they do, they can be absolutely, incredibly powerful. So what I'd like to do today is share with you three stories from my own career and from that of others and really help you hopefully when you leave UCSB to really stand out. And whether you choose to stand out in working for a company or you choose to stand out in terms of pitching venture capitalists, I think these two traits will definitely and can apply. Then following the three stories, I'll definitely tell you a little bit more in terms of Commission Junction as an affiliate marketing company technology, obviously competing against the likes of Google and some of the things that we're up to in terms of online advertising and obviously being a very hot space and an ever-evolving space. So I'll definitely end it there and then we can definitely take some questions. But the first story that I actually wanted to share with you was the first time that I had ever come to Santa Barbara. As mentioned, I started at Be Free in 99. As John mentioned, we got acquired by ValueClick, which is currently and still our parent company, in about 2002. And ValueClick actually proceeded to acquire Commission Junction, which at that time was our closest competitor in 2003. So over the course of 2004, 2005, we actually merged 
Be Free and Commission Junction together. We dropped the Be Free brand name, we dropped the platform, and it just became all one company of Commission Junction. So it was in about 2004 timeframe that I made my first trip out to Santa Barbara to visit the Commission Junction offices to meet a lot of the folks. And I actually came with a colleague who we'll call Craig. And as soon as we crossed the threshold to the Commission Junction offices, it was immediately apparent to me that he and I had two very different agendas for the trip. Because I did not see him that entire week. So that week I spent just trying to shake as many hands as possible, get to know as many people as possible. Commission Junction at that point in time had a very different philosophy about affiliate marketing than Be Free did. I was very curious in terms of why they chose that philosophy, how effective it was in the marketplace. They also had a segment of customers that we hadn't been very successful with to really learn. And again, so I got invited out to drinks and dinner and just met a lot of really great people. Well, I later learned that Craig pretty much spent his entire week in the executive arm of the Commission Junction offices trying to demonstrate his own expertise to the executives who at that time were Jeff Pullen, who is still local here to Santa Barbara, and tell them what he knew and what he thought his place should be within the company. Not exactly a lot of humility. So let's just say that Craig was no longer employed with us about six months later. So when the Commission Junction executive team actually came into, I'll say, power, for lack of a better word, over that of Be Free, and we started reporting into Jeff Pullen and the rest of his team, Craig was no longer. And I tell that story because I see it time and time again in business. And you'll quickly learn, whether it's your own company or you're working for somebody else, the only constant in business is change. And it's happening every day, every week, every month. But I'm still surprised by people's resistant or resistance to change. Digging in their heels, worried about themselves, get extremely territorial versus embracing that change. And having the humility and confidence to not feel threatened by others, but instead look at it as an opportunity to be able to learn from others. How can we make this a better company with better people who have, may have different skills than some of us? And I recently applied my own advice, actually, late last year because ValueClick actually acquired another company by the name of Datomi. And they're a Chicago-based company. And I actually had the privilege of being part of the due diligence process. So we went in there and scoped them out, obviously understood their technology, their services, their people. And I really took the same approach. Hey, new company, new people, new platform, new technology. This is really a great chance to learn and to make ValueClick a better company. Well, I have to tell you, I'm so glad I took that approach because I am now reporting to the president of Datomi because he was recently promoted to the COO of ValueClick. So just lesson learned in terms of just being very open. And I'm not sure what's going to happen to some of the peers that may have taken a different tack or a different approach. So again, embracing change and having the humility and confidence to do so. So don't be scared. I see it way too often. And we're doing a lot of reassurance right now, even within Commission Junction, now that John Giuliani is the COO and he's now responsible for Commission Junction. And I, I do, I get a lot of those questions. Well, what does this mean for me? No, what does this mean for Commission Junction? This is an opportunity. 
Second story I wanted to share as it relates to humility and confidence is that actually of my daughter, Peyton. She's nine years old. And like most parents, we have enrolled her in a slew of activities over the years. So we've done soccer, we've done tennis, we just completed the softball season. And I have to say and admit to all of you here that it was incredibly painful. (laughs) She sucks. (laughs) There, I said it. She is just... But you know what? That's not the painful part. (laughs) The painful part is my husband and I are sitting in the beachers, and I'm looking out in the field, and there's this one. You know, it's like, okay, fine, just kneel on the ground and pick up the grass. I I feel better about that. But the, the lack of engagement. I'm not sure exactly what she's looking at, but she's not looking at the pitcher. She's not looking at the batter. She's not even looking at me. I have no idea. And I'm punching my husband's arm like, look at that. Why are we here? She's not engaged. This isn't her passion. And my husband laughs at me because it's like it's become the mother's mission to find Peyton's passion. And it's become this cliche, right? And you've probably heard it as college students time and time again. Find your passion. You will be successful if you can find your passion. And I guess I have a slightly different take on it, because as I I talked about earlier, when I was growing up in high school and in in college and even after college, I was convinced that my passion was sports marketing. I wanted to be in sports. I grew up playing sports. I was always around sports. I wanted to be in sports marketing. That's how I wanted to apply my skills, and therefore that's what I was going to focus my entire career search on. But if you really break it down, I didn't want to do sports. And it really wasn't until I landed at Be Free at the age of 27, 28 years old, that I really understood what my passion was. And when I started at Be Free and started working with clients and I started working with teams of people and I started thinking back to my childhood, it's like, oh yeah, I like getting up in front of people. I like presenting to clients. I used to like presenting in front of my seventh grade class back in the day. I like managing people, just like I liked managing class projects back in the day when I was ninth, tenth grade. That's what I like to actually do. So really understanding and breaking down that passion and really redefining exactly what you want to do and what you like to do. I didn't want to do sports, and I have no doubt now, and looking back, That if I was sitting and analyzing and watching spreadsheets all day long in an awesome sports marketing firm, I would be absolutely miserable. So I'm telling you this, and that's why I'm so fixated on Peyton and trying to find her passion. And admittedly, I have her signed up for literally about 20 camps this summer of all varying degrees of activities in search of trying to find something that she loves to do. So not getting so fixated on, oh, it's got to be a specific vertical or it's got to be a specific category. It's what do you like to do? You know, not all of us are as brilliant and genius as Mark Zuckerberg and know that we'd like to start programming, you know, at the age of 10 or 11 or Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. But the rest of us, we do have a passion. It's just figuring out and defining that 
and really realizing what you like to do. So hopefully most of you know that already, and it doesn't take you until your late 20s to find it. But I mean, I know people in their 40s that still have not been able to find that. But maybe they're focused on the wrong thing. So don't make the same mistake that I did up until my late 20s. So my last and, and final story before we talk a little bit more about Commission Junction and some of the opportunities. And when I was initially preparing to come speak to you all, I was thinking about the importance of communication and being able to really effectively articulate your ideas and really getting other people to follow those ideas. And again, whether it's a new product or service that you have invented, you're trying to get money for, or whether it's working for a company and trying to lead a group of people. But the more I thought about it, and I have to say I've already learned from my new boss in this regard, it's not so much about communication. And one of our former presidents, LBJ, has a great quote in this regard. It's really about conviction. Conviction convinces. And it's really a segue into that passion. You know, part of the reason that Commission Junction is the number one affiliate marketing provider is because I have a lot of conviction. Jen here has a lot of conviction. Isabel has a lot of conviction. And it's not so much that our technology is so much better than our competitors, but we have a lot of great tenure within the company, and that great tenure comes with great passion. And so when we get in front of customers, it's about having that conviction. So again, whatever you decide to do, whether it's your own product or your own company, make sure that whatever it may be that you can possess that conviction. Because it sells like nobody's business. And we actually just sat through an all-day training session with our new boss regarding Datomi and some of their new products. And John Giuliani has conviction when it comes to Datomi. And all the salespeople left that meeting all rah-rah about Datomi and selling that. I said, well, don't forget about selling affiliate, too, but conviction. So again, humility and confidence. So critical to whatever career you may decide to pursue, whether that's as an independent, as an entrepreneur, or working for a company. And I don't see it enough. Your ability to learn from others and embrace change your ability to really have the confidence to be able to redefine or define your passion and pursue it, and then also being able to really use that to speak with conviction. So, you know, again, we hire a lot of kids right out of school, and some stand out in the first one, two, three, four, five years, and some do not. It's just some little tips and tricks for you to kind of rise above the rest. Because it's getting more and more competitive. So any questions on any of those pieces? And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about Commission Junction and definitely apply some of these characteristics and skills, but then also talk a little bit in, from a technology standpoint and this is also something which is great about Commission Junction is that we actually work with a lot of entrepreneurs. 
Um, I actually went and spoke to Mark Schuster's venture capitalist group down in L.A. probably about a year ago because they're rent- representing a lot of incubator companies that are looking for new ways to monetize, especially, obviously, most of them being online at this point in time. So, all right, so we'll talk a little bit. Do we want to take a question now, or if so, I want you guys to use the mic. Any questions now? All right. So, first of all, I'm very pleased to announce, I actually just did a recent tally internally, that we actually have 66 UCSB alum, which is awesome. So, I myself, unfortunately, as you know, I'm not a gaucho, but uh, we have many at the company, so it's about 20% of our overall population within the company, which is great. So, um, you know, as John mentioned, we started Commission Junction at UCSB. We started in, uh, remind me of the dorm, San Rafael. Dorm room is where it began. So Per Pedersen was actually the founder, along with Lex Sisney. And then Anders Bioras, who's actually still our VP of engineering, was also one of those three in the dorm room, kind of plugging away. Our first office was actually at the, you know, near the airport in one of the office buildings in Goleta there as well. So uh, we have definitely used UCSB as a foundation. And I'll talk a little bit more about affiliate marketing, but it's definitely a very niche industry. So it's very challenging for us to be able to hire folks outside or externally, even if they have online advertising experience, because we sit in a very different spectrum of the online marketing arena. And so we have actually found a lot more success being able to do a lot of promotion from within. So we actually like to bring students in um, right out of college and really groom them. Um, I know we have, Jen, there's a lot of folks in, in her teams that actually have started here and they've been now here six, seven, eight years. So just to tell you a little bit more about who we work with and what we do, um, we have about 400 employees worldwide. We have about th- just over 300 here in North America. As John stated, we have about seven different offices um, across the United States, which has been great because there's been a lot of folks that think that they want to stay in Santa Barbara right after school, and then they get to that, oh, I don't know, 25, 26, 27, they want to venture out again. So it's been really great that we've been able to retain a lot of our employees, and if they want to make a transfer up to San Francisco, which we absolutely support, or we've definitely had a few that go out to New York City as well. Um, Our largest office, obviously, is here in Santa Barbara. We have about 150 uh, people were right off of Cali Cesar Chavez, uh, you know, probably a couple blocks from the ocean. So really nice um, location in that regard. Um, and we work with about 3,000 advertiser clients. And so, as John said, there's really two sides of our business. There's the advertiser clients that are promoting their products and services through our network and working with about 70,000 publishers within our network in terms of the promotion of those products and services. So some of those 3,000 clients include folks like The Gap and all the Gap properties. We also have Best Buy. We have pretty much every computer hardware manufacturer, including Apple, which, of course, is a really, really fun account. Um, trying to name some of the other. Symantec, hotels, all pretty much much of the, the travel ag- aggregators as well. So we talk about Expedia, Priceline, Travelocity. We work with all those folks as well. So we have about 60% of the Internet retailer 500 actually have chosen to work with Commission Junction, which is about double the amount that work with our closest competitors, one being Google uh, and the other one being a company called Linkshare. So we've done very well um, in the market, and you can see in terms of how many transactions we generate on an annualized basis. 
as well as uh, the number of site visits. So what makes us unique and why we're so niche in the industry from an online marketing arena, but this is also why our advertiser clients like The Gap love us, is that it is very low risk. So how many of you have your own websites, blogs? Very many of you? So, and how many of you have wor actually worked with Commission Junction? Any of you publishers? Or Okay, great. So you know. So what makes us really unique is the sense that most online advertising you're paying for eyeballs. Hey, if somebody we think looks at that ad, whether they did or not, the advertiser's paying for that. If they click on the ad, they're paying for that. We don't engage in those models. The model that we engaged in is that the advertisers do not pay unless the consumer that has visited that site has made a purchase or populated a lead form. That is the only time that the advertiser has to pay. So as you can imagine, it's very low risk for the advertiser, because they're not paying unless a sale is made. For the publisher, there's a lot of risk. But they get to work with a lot of really big brands. So what we've seen with a lot of new publisher websites, whether it be ShopStyle, we've worked with Pose.com, we've worked with Pinterest, is that they don't have to have this huge sales and business development team going out and trying to connect with these advertisers and getting them to advertise on their site. They can work through networks like Commission Junction. So they get, really, they get scale. They get business development help. So they can join our network, and immediately they'll have access to these 3,000 advertisers. So if they try to call Nick Sheff at The Gap, who is the business development director, and try to get him on the phone to, to negotiate a deal, good luck. The man never empties his voicemail. So it's really nice that they have another venue through Commission Junction to say, hey, I want to put Gap on my site. I can work through Commission Junction to do so, and I can promote them appropriately. But again, not getting paid unless a sale or lead has been generated. So a great business model. You know, we have survived uh, the dot-com boom and bust, uh, one of many uh, online marketing companies did not, because even during that time frame, you know, advertisers were struggling. They were definitely cutting a lot of marketing budgets, but they still wanted sales. And so it's been a really great model to really kind of ride the ebbs and flows of the overall economy, and that's why I always trust and have been with it as long as I have, um, because advertisers like it, publishers like it, and we can continue to work with really some in innovative and exciting models. So at the end of the day, and this is really what dictates our kind of future product roadmap and some of the things that we're looking at, is that in my mind, Commission Junction's number one mission or priority or strategy is to ensure that we're providing the necessary tools and resources that those publishers can reach that consumer wherever they may be you know, initiating a transaction. So if you think back 10 years ago, it was primarily maybe on a website. Well, it's now evolved, obviously. We now have social media. We now have mobile. We have local. So we need to make sure that from a Commission Junction standpoint that we're providing the tools to those publishers in order to make sure that they can reach those consumers. And so that's our daily challenge. That's where we're constantly innovating and working with partners to ensure that absolutely takes place. 
Here's actually, so I gave you an example of some of the advertisers that we work with within the network. Here's actually a sample of one of the publishers that we work with that some of you may be familiar with. Of course, I'm a little bit fashion biased, but ShopStyle is actually a pretty significant publisher in the network. They definitely work with some of our clients like The Gap, as well as Revolve Clothing, work with ShopOp, which you may also be familiar with. And so as you can see, in terms of what they're trying to do in order to reach that consumer. And most of those links that you see are up there are affiliate links. So we are doing all of the tracking, we're doing all of the reporting, and we're conducting all of the payments. So those links, what's behind there is affiliate marketing code. And so what they're doing is they're coming into the network, they're copying and pasting that code onto their site, consumer comes, clicks on that code, it hits the advertiser site, and then if a purchase is made, it gets redirected to Commission Junction. So we have code also on the advertiser shopping cart so we can match up that surfer ID from the consumer as well as what's going on from the advertiser site as well. And so all of that. And so then ShopStyle can actually go into our interface and actually see the transactions that they generated for a ShopBop or Revolve Clothing or a Gap. And then any transactions that they need to be paid for, we facilitate all of that as well. And so you can see here ShopStyle, who's definitely... I think on the cutting edge, they're trying to build their community, obviously, through Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, um, Google+, um, and then also in terms of you know, building a mobile application, which is really going to be the next challenge for many of us. We're working with a lot of our advertisers to make sure that they have mobile-enabled sites, not only have mobile-enabled sites, but they also include our tracking as well. So if a shop style refers a consumer to a mobile application, that we can track that and they'll get paid accordingly. It gets a little hairy when you start to talk about in-app tracking, from, which gets a little bit crazy. And I think Apple obviously has uh, quite a few gates around some of their AID and, and whatnot. So that's going to be really obviously the next evolution. Obviously, Facebook has seen that too in, in imagery and the acquisition of Instagram. Um, so making sure what is our place in that world and making sure that we can continue to monetize across all of those vehicles. The next instance for us, and this is where Datomi comes in, is also really being able to track both online and offline. And I think what you're going to see with the evolution of the online market landscape is that marketers now are getting away from looking at each channel as an individual channel in which to measure. And when I say channel, I'm talking about email, I'm talking about display, I'm talking about affiliate. They're really blurring those channels and really putting the consumer at the epicenter of those channels. And making sure that I, as a marketer, know where my consumer is at every point in time, how they're engaging with my brand, where they're purchasing, where they're not, whether it be online or offline, so that I can message them accordingly. And it's really going from this notion of episodic marketing, which is really based on one data point that somebody may have about a consumer, to more of metronomic marketing, which is really understanding the course of that or journey of that consumer over the course of time. So I can understand that, hey, Carrie recently got married and then she had a baby and I can message her accordingly. So you're going to see that and whether it's I'm shopping through my mobile device, I'm socially, you know, shopping through Facebook, they know everything that's going on with me. And I, obviously the other big piece of that is some of the privacy concerns too that are also being debated at the federal level. So making sure that that's all anonymized. In my, in, in my, you know, from my perspective, there's going to be advertising. If you like content, if you want content, we need advertising. And if I have the opportunity to have that advertising customized to me, that I can see a pair of shoes instead of a wheelbarrow, I'm going to take it. 
So hopefully most consumers agree. I think there's a lot of ignorance in the marketplace, but that's obviously where value click overall definitely sits uh, really in the epicenter of a lot of those debates. So we'll continue to watch it and monitor such that information. So. All right, last but not least, and if there's uh, any questions, I just wanted to end on this note, which is I was telling John when we spoke a couple months ago, is that um, you know, we may not have a $100 billion valuation like Facebook does, but at Commission Junction, we definitely have a ton of fun. And when you talk about trying to use passion and conviction and getting people to embrace change, this is actually an example of doing just that. We have an annual conference every single year in September. We have about 800 clients that come in from around the world, actually. Last year, or the last 10 years, it's been at the Fest. We've actually moved it to the Bacara. Uh, but when we did it last year at the Fest, we have an awards dinner. And we surprised all of our clients with 150 employees getting up in the middle of the awards dinner with no notice into a flash mob which, if you want to look it up on YouTube, it's still there. I, I meant to look in terms of how many hits we've gotten. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's over 5,000. It's not in the millions, but uh, it, it's quite up there. It was, clients are still talking about it almost a year later. We are now challenged this year for this year's conference in terms of, so what are you going to do to top the flash mob? I'm like, isn't that the Bacara the not, you know? <laughs> So, it's, uh, so we had a lot of fun, but it was, uh, it was quite a hoot trying to get 150 employees to really buy in to doing a flash mob. You can imagine some of the resistance uh, that we encountered, and I, I think I probably crossed some HR paths going, you will do the flash mob. Um, but we actually had everybody from all the different offices. New York was actually practicing in Central Park, and it was, uh, it was unbelievable um, in terms of the, re- the impact that it had. Um, the adrenaline, and I think everybody just felt awesome um, after it. So, um, again, we have a lot of fun. If you are uh, interested in Commission Junction, please look us up. We, a lot of the careers are online. I also will definitely hang out here for a little bit uh, after the fact, too. Um, and Isabel and Jen can gladly talk to you about some of the positions. Um, to talk a little bit about the services side or where most of our positions sit, like I said, we have 300 employees. We do have about 40 engineers, um, but we also have about half of our company is client-facing. So an affiliate channel is not a set-it-and-forget-it type of solution. Um, we're all about getting advertisers and publishers together, so recruiting publishers to advertisers program, and then making sure that we're maximizing that advertising. So it's a lot of relationships and relationship building, the reporting, tracking what's working, what's not working. Uh, we do a lot of travel in terms of meeting with clients, and so that's where most of our positions are, or probably half of our openings are are really on the client side. We do have about 10 engineering positions open as well. And then we also have, obviously, a finance and analytics team, business systems, support ops. So a myriad of different positions, and most of which are actually based in Santa Barbara. So. Great. Thank you. Carrie, I have a question while I'm walking over there. Okay. So, I, I, you know, I like the humility, confidence, passion, and, yeah. um, and um, conviction. But since a lot of these folks are going to be graduating and, and job interviewing, do you have any sort of, um, I wouldn't say horror stories, but just things they should absolutely avoid in an interview? I'm sure you've seen quite a, you know, quite a, quite a few. Yeah, it, you know, it still kills me. And, I mean, even I'm, I've been recently interviewing um, a position on the executive team. 
And so, you know, he, these are senior level folks. They probably have close to 15, sometimes 20 years of experience. And the lack of homework. I mean, we actually did a group interview where we actually brought in a candidate. First of all, he was 15 minutes late. Like, basic stuff. Like, at your level, dude. It's like, fit really? Um, so, 15, you know, 15 minutes late. He knew everybody that was going to be in the panel interview. So, you know, with LinkedIn, with Google, there's like no excuse at this point in time. And, you know, my approach would have been, okay, I'm going to know everything that I can about everybody that I'm interviewing with. And I'm going to actually make reference to it throughout the course of the interview so they know that I've done my homework. None of that was done. And then again, with, with the internet and everything and all the information, we put a lot out there in terms of our websites, our marketing collateral, the clients that we work with, some of the, the business strategies that we're working on. I've done interviews with publications. Jen's done interviews. There's so much information that you should really know what we're focused on, especially if it's your second or third time in. But again, the lack of homework and people's just thinking that they can wing it, I, you know, just the lack of preparation. And again, if they don't have that confidence then about the people that they're meeting with or your business, there's no conviction, right? You can't really speak to, hey, I am the best person for this job and this position, and this is the value that I can add to your company, and this is why. That only comes with prep. That only comes with homework. And again, I'm still, it sounds so, ba- well, of course, Harry, you need to, but I would say eight out of ten times, people do not do it. Say they love go to my PC, and then when I asked them what they loved about it, they were just staring at me stone faced. They had no idea. So here's a here's a recommendation that I that I give the students in my entrepreneurship class for a company like Commission Junction that's here in Santa Barbara. You should be on LinkedIn, find someone who's relatively young, invite them to coffee, sit down with them, and ask them, Hey, what's it like to work there? And that way, when you go into that interview, you will blow them away because you'll say, oh, yeah, I met with John for coffee, and I really love the fact that you guys do the following, and that's you know, really motivated me. It's why I, I want to work here. That will put you miles above the people that walk in and go, yeah, I saw, the, saw it on Craigslist. And, yeah. <laughs> what do you guys do? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we've got absolutely. a question over here. Yeah, I was uh, curious as to how you envision mobile advertising strategy shifting as more users uh, shift from using their computers as a platform to their mobile devices. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting. And, you know, what kind of kills me, too, is that I really don't consider your iPad or any tablet to be a mobile device. I mean, in my mind, that's really the extension of the desktop. Um, And from Commission Junction's perspective, again, we're not just interested in the browsing aspect. We want people to actually be making a purchase. And so when you look at just smartphones and people making a purchase, how many people have done? And it, it almost goes back to the start of the internet in terms of where people's comfort level was. And so if you think about the, the start of the internet, it was about music, it was about books. You know, that's why Amazon was one of the first affiliate programs. Barnes & Noble was quickly to follow. I think you're going to see the same thing, obviously, with the smartphones in terms of purchase activity. Um, you know, I'm a little bit uh, worried about the fact that one of our clients, Best Buy, has now become best to browse, right? So people are in there with their mobile devices and browsing, you know, all the products that they're looking at, touching and feeling, and then going... Back to Amazon, and you know, doing Amazon Prime to get that get it shipped there. So, still obviously a lot of browsing activity, a lot of branding and awareness. Um, I think we're starting to see some levels of engagement. It does get a little bit tricky because there's really some restrictions in terms of what can and cannot be tracked, especially going from in-app. Um, so we're we're still trying to really figure a lot of those pieces out. But for a lot of us, it's just even advertisers still having a mobile experience. 
um, you know, when somebody, especially e-commerce related. So that's definitely where we're focused on. Um, but, you know, absolutely, it is, uh, it is coming. It's coming. You know, we had been saying it was like the year of the mobile device, literally for like the last seven years. <laughs> and I finally said this past year at our conference, I'm like, it's here. Um, and we need to prepare for it. And we have a lot of publishers, which is great, actually building out their own mobile presences, mobile apps, and working with advertisers. And, but people are still you know, trying to figure it out, definitely. Yeah. Hi. Um, you said you enjoy uh, ma managing people. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if maybe you could share with us uh, uh, some of your personal philosophies behind managing people and uh, maybe like the amount of people you work with on a day-to-day -day basis, yeah. things like that. Yeah, should have you guys uh, answer that. <laughs> personal philosophies on managing people. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, and I, unfortunately, I have to say, it was uh, when I joined Be Free, it was kind of in hyper-growth mode. And so you don't have a lot of great management. I know in startup environments as well, everybody's just moving so fast and furious and heads down. And we think about being a good manager and effectively managing people. So I can't say that I had a ton of great role models, which is somewhat scary. And I, I'm really trying to do things differently at Commission Junction because, you know, bad managers, that's one of the number one reasons why people leave companies is because of their manager. And so you're really impacting people's livelihoods. Um, but, you know, I think my biggest philosophy, too, is that you can't treat everyone the same. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that I see from even some of our senior managers is that they often treat and manage people how they like to be treated and managed. And so when you think about IQ, yes, that's important in business. But in my mind, I was all lives much more by EQ, the emotional quotient. You know, and really being able to be empathetic, putting yourself in their shoes and understanding the reaction to whether you're delivering good news or bad news. Um, we're also trying to invest more so, too, in our, a lot of our managers, which is also a different skill, is it's just not managing the day-to-day, -day, but keeping employees happy and retained and motivated. It's really about working with them on their career development as well. So even if there's not that immediate next step or opening for them, how do I continue to challenge them in terms of special projects, other opportunities, other divisions of the company, if that's an opportunity? Um, and I actually read a great article, and I don't know if John's read it as well, through the, the Harvard Business Review, but that's something that we've definitely instilled, at least at the executive level, and it was in Harvard Business Review not too long ago, and that's about progress. That the biggest motivator for employees is the recognition of progress. It's the little things. And to know that they're adding value to the organization and making a difference for their own personal development as well as the overall company. And so I'll send it to you, and it just it's like... I wish I would have read it like 15 years ago. It's just, and so it's something that we now try to live by as well to make sure that, okay, again, if that next position isn't available, I want to make sure that this employee is making progress, that I understand what they want to do. And then also for those that haven't yet figured out their passion too. You know, we've played around with concepts of trying to rotate employees into different areas of the business so they don't have the, the same reaction like Peyton does out in the, the outfield in terms of lack of engagement and not motivated. And unfortunately, and I'd love to say that, hey, all of, all of our employees are absolutely motivated and engaged and have found their passion. Absolutely not. So that's always going to be a continuous challenge for us. All right. Well, I just had a small question. I remember you mentioning something about um, if you found out someone had been recently married or had a child that you would change your advertising based on that kind of thing. 
Um, I don't know if you heard about this, but recently Target had a big controversy yes, yeah. where they were finding out that women were pregnant before the women found out. Right, yeah. yeah How do you... Was, um, yeah, I think the, the father found out that his daughter was pregnant through some mail that she had received, I believe, um, before she had actually told him, yeah. Tailored ads, advertisements. How do you walk the line of being creepy? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's that's a very very good point. And uh, you know, our newest acquisition is much more close, you know, closer to this. When you get into, because that's where the internet is going. It's going really to this personalized, one-to-one messaging. And you probably see it on the web today, whether you know it or not. If you've been, it's happened to me where I go to Zappos, one of our advertisers, and I may look at a pair, you know, I'm very shoe focused, look at a pair of shoes, and then that pair of shoes is stalking me (laughs) around the web. You know, it's like, people, frequency cap, please. You know, it's like, you don't have to show it to me 20 times. And sometimes, hey, I've already bought the pair of shoes, and you're still showing it to me. That's not really intelligent advertising. And that's not necessarily creepy, but that's definitely annoying and obnoxious. so yeah, it, there is. There's de- definitely a, a fine line. But you know what's happening is a lot of these companies are not only getting your online activity, but they're also getting your in-store activity. They're also getting two years of history. They don't have your names, but they're building profiles. And so this woman obviously had a profile built around her in terms of some of the things that she had been buying. So hey, this woman is having a baby. That's now one of her motivators that's sitting in her profile. Because, so all future marketing is going to be focused on this. She probably thought it was great. Hey, great. Obviously, the dad finding it is a whole other issue, but um, it's very targeted advertising. So it was probably great for her and not so great the fact that she hadn't yet communicated to her dad. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.